Today we are continuing on into part 19 of our series in Romans, and we've arrived at chapter 8 and verses 31 to 39, the summit of the gospel. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this precious, life-giving word. We thank you for its incredible majesty and how it gloriously reveals that your heart towards us is so filled with love that there is absolutely nothing in all of creation that can separate us from it. And so I pray, Father, that you would anoint this word. Speak through me, your servant, this morning. Open our minds and our hearts to receive it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The great mountaineer, Sir Edmund Hillary, alongside his Sherpa guide, Tenzing Norgay, became the first two men to successfully reach the summit of Mount Everest on May 29, 1953. This marked the first time that any man had stood atop the highest point on planet Earth. Upon reaching the summit, Hillary recalls his first feelings of being sheer relief that they had arrived, that their oxygen tanks had held out, and that there they stood at long last after years of planning of relentless, meticulous preparation, and then finally, the arduous climb itself. Then, he was exhausted from their efforts, the euphoria of the moment overcoming him, and he felt his body want to slump to the ground, and yet, there they stood, atop earth. And there, he looked out at the grandeur around him, and chief amongst the feelings he had ever felt before in his life was a sense of sheer awe. For there as he stood atop the world, words simply failed him, and he and his guide simply hugged one another, completely speechless at what they had accomplished and what they had seen. And there in a 360-degree panorama around them, they looked in all directions at the grandeur and majesty surrounding them. Well, in much the same way, we have been on a very long climb with the Apostle Paul through the first eight chapters of Romans, as we have traversed, in a sense, the Mount Everest of the gospel. Romans stands apart as giving the most comprehensive uh, explanation of every aspect of the gospel anywhere in Scripture. And so now today, as we've journeyed along with Paul, we have finally arrived at that same majestic summit. And here in Romans 8, 31 to 39, we stop for a moment, breathless, a little bit exhausted, But then we just look around and we take in the sheer grandeur of what God has revealed to us. For here in verse 31, as we pick it up, we we see and we look back on where we've come. That here it is this gospel of Jesus Christ. That for those of us who have received it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is all ours. It is all ours. Nothing has been withheld. And as we, as we sit here and, and realize that we can embrace this by simple faith, and now we are adopted, foreknown, chosen from before the foundation of the world, and that even now he is transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, Paul simply asks in breathless wonder, what then shall we say in response to all of this? What shall we say? Now, Think about that for a moment. As you look in the mirror, and, and, and we've, we've done this before, we look in the mirror and we, we reflect on the fact that I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. My body now is, is a temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells within me by faith. 
That this flesh, though it is fading away and it's, and it's, and it's uh, groaning in its weakness and in its decay, this flesh itself will be resurrected gloriously every way like Christ. And one day we will be glorified just as Christ has been glorified. And, and as we consider all of these layers of the gospel that are ours in Christ, Paul says, what shall we say in response to this? Indeed, what can we say? Words simply fail us what God has done. And it's here that words fail and, and we simply sit and consider the all-encompassing love of God that he would do this for us. It's here where words fail that I believe a true heart of worship begins. And it's here that we see Paul asking, what shall we say then? And he pauses and he thinks, what shall he say And then he begins to ask a series of questions in rapid-fire succession. And so we're going to follow through with Paul's questions, how he seeks to respond to this all-encompassing love of God. Verse 31, question number one, he asks, If God is for us, who can stand against us? If God is for us. Now, that word if is translated that way, making it sound as though it could be questionable if God is for us. But actually, the, the Greek can be used either way. It, it depends on the context. And just as accurate a translation would be to say, since God is for us. Because remember, this is in context of what has come before. So, since God is for us, if we are his children adopted, then who can stand against us? Now, the short answer to the question is this. Who can stand against us? Many. Many can stand against us, right? And when we say many, we will add to that, many will stand against us, but all will fail. Many will stand, many will try, but all will fail. Because the Bible makes it clear that the Christian does have enemies. In fact, we have three main enemies in this world. The the first is the system of the dark world itself that it's been corrupted by the prince of darkness, and so we know the system of this world is an enemy. The second, fle- the second enemy we find much closer to home, we find it in ourselves, and that's our flesh, following long-established sinful habits. Does everyone remember that acronym? That's our other enemy, is, the, is our own flesh. And by the Spirit, we must prevail over it. And of course, we know that prince of darkness, the devil, is our other enemy. There's an active active enemy, the devil, Satan, and his forces of darkness who also stand as enemies against the children of God. But now, with God on our side, even if all three of these enemies are to try to oppose us, to stand against us, to even attack us simultaneously, Paul says, even they will fail, they will fall, and we will prevail. A pastor once shared about a trial that his son went through shortly after they had moved to a new community And he had enrolled in a new elementary school there. His son, David, was quite shy and also undersized for his age. And unfortunately, this made him a very easy target for the local bullies to pick on. Now, from the very first day of school, they they marked him, they targeted him, and they proceeded to make his life completely miserable. Every day they would do different things, tormenting him, teasing him, pushing him around, bullying him, causing him to feel like nothing. However, these were in the days where David knew that if he were to tell a teacher or to even tell his parents, it would probably just make things worse because once the bullies found out, they would just ratchet up the pressure 
And so out of fear, he suffered in silence. Then one day, an older high school student named Mike, he heard about David's plight, that the new kid was getting bullied relentlessly every day. And so the high school was across the street from the elementary school. And one day, this high school student named Mike, he just so happened to be the captain of the high school wrestling team. And on on top of that, he went by the nickname Big Mike. And he went by the nickname Big Mike for a reason. He was built like a tree trunk and uh, a neck about the same size. And he decided that the very next day he was going to go see what this situation was all about. And so he crossed the street to the elementary school playground during recess and he arrived there just in time to see the first bully push David to the ground. So Mike walked up from behind the bully and using only one arm, that's all he needed, Mike proceeded to pick him up by the collar of his jacket. And then as the bully was kicking and and punching into thin air, unable to do anything, Big Mike just turned to the others and said as loudly so everyone else could hear, now listen up because I'm only going to say this once. If you bother David one more time, I mean if you even look at him cross-eyed, I'm coming after you, do you hear me? While there were nothing but big eyes and nods to Big Mike, he then dropped the bully to the ground, who immediately ran for his life. Mike then looked at David lying on the ground, and he said to him, Meet me in front of school tomorrow morning. I'll walk you in, just so they know I mean business. Well, the very next morning, David's parents were amazed to see that not only was he up early, but he was cheerfully getting ready for school without even being told. And so his mother said to him, David, it's it's so good to see that you're actually cheerful about going to school today, but why the sudden change? To which David replied with a big smile, I'm not afraid anymore because Mike is for me and Mike is with me. Mike is for me and Mike is with me. And what a difference that made. Because if Mike was for him, who of those bullies could stand against him? And now we take that little illustration and multiply it by about a million. Because whatever opposition, no matter how fearful or powerful we may be facing or will face in our lives, today, tomorrow, next week, next year, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Because someone even bigger, someone even stronger than Big Mike is here. And if God is for you, if God is with you, then who can stand against you? Who? Many will try, but all will fail. In Psalm 27, verse 1, there's another David who knew a thing or two about facing off against bullies. Bullies much bigger than himself, in fact. One who famously is called Goliath. And in Psalm 27, verse 1, this is what David wrote. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You see, yes, this dark world, our own sinful flesh, and the devil are fearful enemies. But with God for us and with us, it is not us but they who will fail. And it is we who will prevail because of him. So now on to the second question. What will God withhold from us? What will God hold back? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now let me repeat that first line again. He who did not spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. That's a loaded statement, isn't it? Now I'm a father. I've got two sons. Now if you were to ask me, to make a list of things or people that I would willingly give either of them up for, how long do you think that that sheet would be? It would be really short. In fact, there would be nothing on it. There is nothing in this world that I would give up either of my sons or any of my children for. They are precious to me. And so here we read that God the Father, it says... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. It's incredible to stop and consider this, that the Father, together with the Son, and we read in Ephesians last week that before even the foundations of the world, that they got together and they agreed on the plan, the the course of action that we were foreknown and forechosen for salvation, which meant that, yes, the Lamb slain before even the foundation of the world, it was agreed upon that the Son would not be spared in order that we could be spared and that he would take our death in our place. There's a story told of a small-town pastor who, at their church's Sunday evening service, you might remember way back when they had those, and at their Sunday evening service, he introduced an elderly guest minister who was visiting and He gave him a brief introduction and said he was a very special friend to him, and he invited him to the pulpit to share whatever the Lord had laid on his heart. And with that, the elderly minister slowly made his way up to the pulpit, and he began to speak. And he said, many years ago, a father and son and a friend were sailing on the Pacific Ocean when a fast storm blocked any attempt for them to get back to shore. The waves were so high Even though the father was an experienced sailor, he could not keep that boat upright. And soon, the father, the son, and the son's friend were swept overboard into the ocean as the boat capsized. At this moment, the elderly minister paused. Emotion was rising to the surface, but he held it in check and continued to tell the story. Grabbing a rescue line, the father had to make the most excruciating decision of his life. To which boy would he throw the lifeline? He had only a second to make his decision. To which boy would he extend life? And now the father knew in this moment that his son was a Christian. He had a clear faith in Jesus Christ, but he also knew that his son's friend was not. He had been resisting the message of salvation. The agony of his split-second decision could not be matched by the torrent of the waves And finally, the father yelled out, Son, I love you. And he threw the lifeline to his son's friend. By the time the father had pulled the friend back up into the capsized boat, his son had disappeared beneath the waves. His body was never recovered. The father, the old man continued, knew that his son would step into eternity to be with Jesus. But he simply could not bear the thought of his son's friend stepping into eternity without Christ, going into the outer darkness. And therefore he sacrificed his son in order to save his son's friend. 
How great is the love of God that he should do the same for us. For our heavenly father sacrificed his only begotten son that we could be saved. And he closed with this appeal. I urge you to accept his offer to rescue you and to take a hold of the lifeline that he has thrown to each one of us. And with that, the old man stopped his speech and his message. He sat back down in his pew and silence filled the room as the pastor returned slowly to the pulpit and then with visible emotion said, Now, some of you will likely think this is a far-fetched story that has just been told, not very realistic at all, that a father would give up his only son's life in hopes that the other would become a Christian. But you see, it is true. And then with tears pouring down his face, he pointed to the elderly minister and he said, For he is the father. And then he pointed to himself and said, And I am the son's friend. He could have spared his son, but instead he threw the lifeline to me. And so, my friends, it is the same with us. God did not spare his own son. He did not spare him, though he could have, though by all rights he should have, but instead he threw the lifeline to you, to me. And all that remains is for us to take hold of it by faith. And if, and if you are here today, if you're listening, and you've not yet laid hold of that lifeline by faith, I urge you, I, I urge you, I beg you, it's good news, lay hold of it. Lay hold of this gospel because it is salvation for your soul and it's yours through faith in Christ right now. He did this for you so that you could be with him. And now let me also say that if you have done so, if you know that you know that you know that you have laid hold of the lifeline by faith in Christ alone, through grace alone, then Paul's question to you is now this. If God has already given you his very best, if he did not spare his own son, what else, what lesser thing could there ever be that he would withhold from you? For if he did not spare his own son, is there some lesser thing that he's going to say, I gave you my son, but I won't give you that. It would be like saying, I, I proposed to Leanne and I gave her the, the precious engagement ring that, that you know, symbolizes my love and now our commitment in marriage. And then if she were to ask me after the fact, oh, by the way, could I have the box to the ring? And I would say, no, you can't have the box. That's too precious. But you could have the ring. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Of course not. If I've given her the ring, she can have the box. If God has given us the son, we can have everything else besides. What is he going to withhold if he did not spare his own son? And so he will graciously give us all things through Christ. Now the third question. Who can accuse us? Who can accuse us? Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Well, here's the answer. Who can accuse us? Satan. Satan can accuse us, and he does so all the time. In fact, the very name Satan in Hebrew is translated as slanderer or accuser. In Revelation 12, verse 10, we read this description of him. For the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. So here we see it's not just a one-time accusation, it's relentless. Day and night, 
he accuses the brethren before God. And so, that's exactly what Satan could very well be doing right now. Accusing us before God. Right now, you could in fact be the target of one of his accusations. He may be saying to God, Oh sure, so-and-so's in church right now, but do you know what he did last week? Oh sure, she might be praying right now, but look at the impure thoughts she's had in the past. And further, Satan and his demons are also capable of whispering those accusations in our own ears. Saying things like, You're no good. You're a rotten sinner. What are you doing in church today? Remember all those times you blew it. You're a hypocrite. You're a fake. Remember all your wrong thoughts and your words. You're nothing but a dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. You're not worthy of God. And now when Satan hurls these accusations our way, when he whispers them in our ears, the first part of the trap is that we must admit they are, they are true. He doesn't have to make up. He doesn't have to make up lies about us because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So when he comes with these accusations, they're based on truth. We are sinners. But now here's the key. If we have received God's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if we have confessed our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so therefore, as Paul says, it is God who justifies Meaning, again, if you've been following along, you know what justified means. It means God has declared us not guilty. Not guilty. It is just as if we never sinned. So when the accuser comes along and says, dirty, rotten, filthy sinner, God says, justified, not guilty. In my eyes, they are pure and clean because they are hidden in Christ. Isaiah 43 verse 25 puts it this way. God has blotted out our transgressions and he remembers them no more. God has blotted out our transgressions and he even remembers them no more. Corey Ten Boom said it like this. When God forgives our sins, he casts them in the deepest part of the sea and then he puts up a sign that says, no fishing. No fishing. They are, they are buried. They are gone. He remembers them no more. So when Satan wants to go fishing and to dredge up old things that are under the blood, and he says, remember this, remember that, you're no good, God says, nuh-uh, that's not how this works. They are justified. I remember their sin no more. So my friends, listen. If you're here today and there's some sin from your, from your past that the, that the enemy keeps bringing up and you've, you've repented of it, you've, you've, you've confessed it, and the, the enemy comes and, and wants to accuse you and make you feel shame and guilt, listen, God has declared you not guilty. Free and clear, therefore, you can go forward forgetting the past. You are under the blood. And therefore, Satan's accusations now have no power because God himself remembers your sin no more. And so the accuser can try, but they do not stick because of him. And now it goes on to the second part of the same question. Who can condemn us? Verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Here's the answer. As much as Satan would love to claim the power of being able to condemn us, he cannot. Only God, our creator, has the power to condemn us to hell for our sins. Remember, it was Jesus who said, 
Don't fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill the body and cast your soul into hell. He was referring to God the Father. Only God the, Fa- the Father has that power. Satan might pretend he has that power, but he does not. Only God can condemn. And we went, now, when we've established this fact, we go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where this whole beautiful chapter began. And what did we read? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Beautiful, isn't it? Not some condemnation or very little condemnation. None. No condemnation. And further than that, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father now interceding for us. And so that means that when Satan comes along, like like we've just read, hurling those accusations against us, against God's children, Jesus is there, our defender and our advocate. Like a defense attorney in a court of law, he's there at the right hand of the judge, and every time the the prosecuting attorney comes in and says, sinner, slanderer, gossip, adulterer, murderer, and, and he hurls all of, these, all of these accusations, Jesus, the defense attorney, says, covered, 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 and covered. And day and night, just as Satan relentlessly accuses those who are in Christ, Jesus advocates for us at the right hand of the Father, and he says, I have covered that. Their debt is paid in full. And so for every sin you or I have ever committed, the debt is paid in full. Who can condemn us? No one. Because God chooses not to because of Christ. Finally, who can separate us from the love of God? The theme of this section, who can separate us from the love of God? Verse 35, he asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now that word for separate in the original Greek means to chop off, to chop off. It's similar to our English word amputate. Who can amputate us? Who can chop us off from the love of God? Paul then proceeds to give a list of things that will try to separate us, try to chop us off. Verse 35, shall trouble or hardship, shall trouble or hardship. The word for trouble in the Greek is defined as anguish or inner pressure. So are there things in your life causing you to feel inner pressure or anguish right now? Now this is principally something within our emotions, within our feelings, where we feel inner pressure. I suspect that all of us have felt some degree of inner pressure over this past year, where, where stress and, and anxiety or some you know, depression or a combination of the three just build up and there's pressure. Now rest assured that those inner pressures, no matter how strong, Paul says, are still unable to separate you from God's love. Next, Paul uses the word hardship, which in the original Greek means outer pressure. So he's doing this deliberately. He says inner pressure and now outer pressure. And this is a word that's being used uh, to describe a context of, say, you're between two rocks. It's external forces putting pressure on you from the outside and you're getting squeezed. It's like our saying between a rock and a hard place, right? Have some of you felt between a rock and a hard place in this past year? Do you feel like you're not only having pressure from within but pressure from without? Perhaps it's financial pressure. Perhaps it's, it's health-related pressure. 
Perhaps it's pressure from your job, pressure from your family. Perhaps it's, it's relational pressure, where, where relationships are, are tense. and Perhaps it's marital pressure. Pressure from friends. And it's just squeezing, and the vice is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And you feel like, I'm going to explode because I got pressure from the outside, I got pressure from the inside. What can I do? And Paul says, don't worry about it because God still loves you. No matter how much pressure you feel on the inside or the outside, it will not separate you from the love of God You're secure. Hold on. He's still got you. Verse 35 continues. Shall persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Now he's on a roll. He's just throwing things at us. Verse 36. He quotes Psalm 44 verse 22. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, these five things he just listed are all physical threats to our safety and well-being. Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Now, persecution refers directly to being targeted by others for our faith. This isn't talking about, like, you know, someone doesn't like your shirt and so they're picking on you. This is persecution because you're a Christian. This is deliberately because you are taking a stand for Christ, you are being targeted. Famine is referring to going hungry because of circumstances beyond your control. There's a famine in the land, you know, and, and there can be different reasons people go hungry, not just, not just weather-related. Nakedness refers to being financially destitute or broke to the point that you can't even keep clothes on your back. Danger refers to the general hazards that we all face living in a fallen world. Blizzards, earthquakes, tornadoes, you name it. There's just dangers. It could also be dangers from man, dangers from nature, all sorts of dangers, dangers from accidents. Do those things separate us, he asks. Finally, the sword. And the the sword refers again to being persecuted, but it's a little bit more targeted because it's talking about being persecuted potentially by the sword. The government does not bear the sword in vain, and it's talking about about a deliberate, systematic persecution, not just a general persecution. And this is talking about being persecuted as well to the point of death. The sword symbolizes that you are at the point of choosing. Am I going to live and renounce Christ or am I going to hold fast and know that my life could be forfeit? Now in the face of all of these terrible options, who wants one of them, right? Not me. I don't want any of these things. Paul didn't want any of these things, but he asked the question, can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is an emphatic no. And the question is often asked, why? Why would God allow his children to suffer any of these things if he loves us so very much? Well, in answer to that question, A.W. Tozer once wrote the following. The hammer is a useful tool, but the nail, if it had feelings and intelligence, could present another side of the story. For the nail only knows the hammer as an enemy, as an opponent, a brutal, merciless enemy who lives only to pound it into submission, to beat it down out of sight and to clench it into place. That is the nail's view of the hammer. And it's accurate except for one thing. The nail forgets that both it and the hammer are servants in the hand of the same workman. Let the nail but remember that the workman who holds the hammer is the same one who holds him, and all the resentments will disappear. 
For it is the worker, the carpenter, who decides whose head shall be beaten next and what a hammer shall be used in the beating. That is the worker's sovereign right. And when the nail has surrendered to the will of the carpenter and has gotten a little glimpse that he is a part of a big plan, he will yield then to the hammer without complaint. Now some of you might feel a lot like the nail, looking at that hammer, saying, that hammer's nothing but an enemy. And I feel like I'm getting hammered all year, and I feel like I'm getting beaten down, and I'm just the target of all of this. But when we remember that there is a worker, and that in all things, God works for the good of those that love him, that means that even the blow of the hammer, when guided by the unseen hand of the divine carpenter is done according to his perfect will and for our ultimate good because we are part of a bigger plan. And we might feel the temporary pain of the blow, but we are being used by the master craftsman to build something bigger and grander than we can imagine, establishing the eternal kingdom of heaven. And so now finally in verse 37, Paul proceeds to answer his own question of whether any of these things that he's listed can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And his answer is no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now this phrase, more than conquerors, is in the Greek a combination word, hyper-Nike. Has anyone here ever heard the word hyper? You ever had it referred to you before? If you're a child here, you have, <laughs> and probably recently, right? Has anyone here got a pair of Nikes? Yeah, Nike shoes? Yeah, some of you will. You've, everyone's heard of them, right? This is, they're coming from the same words, the same Greek words. Hyper Nike is the direct translation for this phrase, more than conquerors. Now, where, how do shoes and being hyper have to do with being more than conqueror? Well, let me, let me explain it to you. Hyper Nike is talking about victory because that is what the word nike means that's why the shoe company chose the name nike means victory and hyper on the front of of nike in front of victory is saying it is ultimate it is ultimate victory it is to thoroughly conquer it is to conquer in such a way that you've gone beyond the conquest you are now a super conqueror you are a super overcomer it's like every superlative that you could put in front of it is, is now applicable because you're not just a winner. You are the winner of all winners. You are the champion of all champions. This is what Paul is getting across here. He, he, he just can't overstate it enough. You are hyper-Nike, more than a conqueror. Now, just how is such a thorough and stunning victory possible for us? Because remember, we just talked about feeling like the nail, getting beaten down by this world and taking blow after blow, and we wonder, how, how in all of this am I more than a conqueror? And here's the key, Paul says it. It is through him that loved us. This goes back to the son that was not spared, through him that loved us. Quite simply, apart from the son, apart from Christ, there is no victory. There is no victory apart from him. There is only defeat and failure and death. But in Jesus and through Jesus, there is nothing but victory upon victory, conquest upon conquest. 
And this victory extends over not only the physical realm, Paul says, but also over the spiritual realm. Verses 38 to 39, he, he continues, For I am convinced. And that word convinced is more than just uh, an intellectual persuasion. It is a lived experience. It is saying, I'm convinced because I've lived it. I know it's true. I am per- persuaded. I'm putting my life on it. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, just in case he hadn't covered it yet, anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen? Isn't that amazing? Nothing, nothing, Satan himself could walk in here right now and say, I'm between you and God. I'm going to separate you from his love. Nuh-uh, get out of here, Satan. You can't separate me from the love of God. No matter what you're facing right now, friends, no matter what you feel, that inner pressure, the outer pressure, circumstances, whatever it is, put it on the list and say, you cannot, you will not separate me from the love of God because it's mine in Christ Jesus right now and for eternity. It's secure. I am more than a conqueror. Victory is mine. It is secure. So life, bring it on. Whatever you've got thrown at me, bring it on. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. And now think just how precious these words are for us today. Think how precious they would have been for that first century church in Rome who was reading them for the very first time. Because persecution had already begun at the time they were reading this letter, but it was about to ratchet up. Because in just a few short years after receiving this letter from Paul, they would be coming under the satanically inspired fury of the Emperor Nero. And I've done a little research into the different ways that the Romans put Christians to death. And let's just say that they were sadistically ingenious in their methods of execution. Sometimes young teenage Christians would be put into a leather bag. And they'd be in this big leather sack and it'd be tied around their neck and inside the bag would be poisonous snakes and scorpions. And that's how they were killed. And Paul was saying, to all of you who go in the bag with the snakes, even that can't separate you from the love of God. And sometimes Christians, some of those who will have read this letter, and in a couple of years, would have been some of those who were tied to the horns of a bull. And the bull would be released in the Colosseum, in the arena, and the crowd would watch and cheer as the bull would fight against a lion with the Christian tied to the bull's horns and would just be gored and killed in the mayhem. And the crowd would cheer. And to them, Paul was saying, even when they tie you to the horns of a bull and they send you into the arena to die, it still won't separate you from the love of God. And sometimes Nero would burn Christians alive and he would use them as fiery pyres to light up the chariot races of his hippodrome. And to them, Paul was saying, even if they burn you in the fire, that still won't separate you from the love of God. And we know that these were not light words. These were not trite, flippant words from the Apostle Paul because he himself, the Bible tells us, was later put in prison in Rome. 
And we know from this, the biblical account in Acts that he was released, but we know from historical writings that shortly after he was arrested again, he was put in the Mamertine prison in Rome, a dungeon, a hole in the ground, until the day that he heard the footsteps of a Roman soldier coming down the hall, undoing the, the gate, leading him in shackles out the door. Historical writings tell us they took him out at sunrise, and they laid him down on a block in the Roman circus. And there a Roman soldier lifted up a long, heavy sword. And we can imagine at this moment the Apostle Paul looking up at that sword. If he did not remember his own words penned to the Romans some years earlier, what then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall famine, nakedness, or even sword? No, in all these things we are hyper-Nike. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And in that moment, as the sword flashed, it swished, it descended. In the following second, Paul was looking into the glowing face of him who loved him. He who was not spared, so that Paul could be more than a conqueror through him. His Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, if you have any doubt at all today, lay them to rest. You are loved. You are loved with an everlasting, eternal love that nothing in all of creation can separate. Nothing can chop off. Nothing can amputate. You are secure in Christ today, tomorrow, and eternity to come. Amen. Lord Jesus, we honor you because this is all possible because you were willing. You were willing to go to the cross, to not be spared so that we could be spared. To die so that we wouldn't have to die. To be judged so that we wouldn't have to be judged. And finally, Lord, to be victorious over the grave in such a way that we are now more than conquerors because of you. And so, Father, in this love we stand in this love, we are secure as your children. And it fortifies our hearts, Lord, against anything this world can throw our way, inner pressure, outer pressure, and everything else in between, Father. We are secure in you. We are confident in your love. And we ask, Father, for anyone today who is not confident in that love through faith in your Son, Father, right now by your Spirit, would you give the grace, the drawing to say yes to you by faith, to lay hold of that rescue line because you have thrown it out in love. Take hold, believe, come to me. I love you. We love you in return. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.